Say God's word. I hope you have the Bible with you. If you do, take it and turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 13 or pull it up on your app. If you don't have a Bible or app on your phone, you can look in the pew in front of you. There should be a Bible and it'll be out of the translation that I use. And so we are starting a new series of messages today and it is called Be Rich. Um, It's something we started, this concept of Be Rich, we started several years ago. It is not unique to us. In fact, it came from a Bible study that I did um, that was taught by a man named Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's the concept is that as believers in America, we need to learn how to be rich, how to live as rich people. And it comes out of First Timothy chapter six, starting in verse 17. You go ahead and put that up. Josh it says, instruct those who are rich in the present age, not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us for all things to enjoy. We're going to stop there for a minute because the first barrier that we have to overcome as we start this series of messages is this. Most of us, when we read that passage, and we've talked about this, if you've been around before, skip over it and think, I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. Because I'm not rich. Other people are rich. I'm not rich. I just want to share with you that if you are here today and you make as a household over $35,000 a year, then according to world standards, you are rich. In fact, if you make as a household over $35,000 a year, you are in the top 79, 79 million people in the world. That's exciting, right? Top 79 million, here we are. But what that means and what you don't understand is, that means that right now on planet Earth, if you make at least $35,000 a year as a household, right now there are 782 billion people who make less than you, at least. You are in the top 1% in the world. Do you remember a few years ago when the 1% protests were happening around Wall Street and everybody was talking about the 1%? Now, they were specifically talking about the 1% of Americans, but the reality is most Americans are one percenters when it comes to the world. And so when Timothy in chapter 6 of Paul's letter to First Timothy, to Timothy, when he says to them, instruct those who are rich in the present age according to the standards of living around the world, the way we are now, we are in that category. We are rich. Most of us. Maybe not all of us, but most of us. The two complaints that I get about that is that that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. I, I don't, we don't feel rich. None of us in this room probably feel rich. Now, maybe some of you realize how blessed you are and you've been blessed even way above that. And you're like, man, I know that I'm rich. But for most people, like I don't feel rich and we don't feel rich for a couple of reasons. First of all, as most of us in this room have little to no margin on what we take in and what we spend. 
Whatever we take in, we spend. Whatever we spend, we hope to take in. Like, there's very little margin. In fact, Americans are doing a little better, according to surveys, than they used to do. But most Americans, my generation and below, live on about 104% of their income. I don't know if you can do math, but you can't do that all the time. Now, our country lives on more than that as a country. But we live, that's a deficit living. So we don't feel like it because we feel like there's not enough margin or any of that stuff. And the second reason most of us in this room don't feel rich is because we know what everyone else has or drives or wears or does. We see it on social media and we watch them as their lives are paraded for us in the most idealistic ways possible. And yet, according to world standards and according to the reality of where we are with Christ, that we are, as American Christians, some of, if not the wealthiest Christians that have ever lived as a group in the history of the world. First Timothy says, instruct those who are rich in this presentation not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides with all things to enjoy. And then he gives us instructions. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and willing to share. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age. Now, that idea of storing up treasure as Jesus did, we store up treasure, or said, in the age to come, not here, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Now, a couple of things about that passage of Scripture really quickly is that we are to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. And he says, this will not only store up for us what is coming, but is the best way to live here and now. As David said in what Julio read, I believe that I am going to see the blessings of the Lord in the land of the living, like here and now, while my lifetime is going. And what he says in First Timothy, Paul, is this is the best way for us to live. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk specifically about being generous and willing to share with our material possessions. But we're going to do it with an understanding of what God is calling us to do. Take your Bibles, if you haven't already, Exodus chapter 13. We're going there today. Just a little background. We've been reading, by the way, several of us have been reading through the Bible this year in a reading plan that has a little bit of Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. There's a scrolling on the announcements when you get here and when you leave as a link or a way you can get to that on Facebook if you want to join that group. And there's not tons of interaction every week, but we have little interaction every week and people are kind of reading through. The readings are up there. But over the last week or so, in fact, on February 1st, we read this passage. And this is right in the middle of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is about the Exodus. That was a really hard question, right? So the book of Exodus is about the Exodus when God's people are taken. They've been in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. Joseph got them to Egypt in a good way, God-positive way. God brought them there so that he could protect them in the midst of a famine. They are there. Over time, people forget Joseph, forget what he did, and they begin to treat the Israelites as less than people. They enslave them, they work them, and they cry out to God for deliverance. And eventually, God brings this man named Moses, who was born of Hebrew, who is uh, Israelite by birth, but was raised in the Pharaoh's throne room, 
raised right next to him in his family, and then is exiled for 40 years after he does some violence to an Egyptian. 40 years in the desert, God calls him to go back and get the people. He has brought them here. They have, they have been passed over by the Lord, and they are moving out. And in chapter 13, Moses is giving them some basics about what life is going to be like once they have arrived at God's promised land. And in chapter 13, verse 11, it says this. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your ancestors, and he gives it to you. So he says, when the Lord does what he says he's going to do, when he brings you into the land of Canaanites, when he takes you there. Um, in other places in Scripture, it's called the land of milk and honey. It's the place where God's people will settle. When that happens, he says in verse 11, this is what you are to do, verse 12. You are to present to the Lord every firstborn male of the womb. All firstborn offspring of the livestock you own that are males will be the Lord. You must redeem every firstborn of a donkey with a flock animal, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. We'll talk about that in a minute because that's kind of strange, right? However, you must redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord brought us out of Egypt By the strength of his hand. So here's what you have to understand. He says, when we get into the land, when we get there and you establish yourself, we must remember what the Lord has done for us. And the way that we're going to do that is you're going to give the firstborn. Now, what is understood is that's of each flock of each season. You're going to give the firstborn to the Lord. Now, there were two types of animals according to Israelite law, according to the law to be laid down here and then in the book of Leviticus. There were clean and there were unclean animals. Clean animals, there were animals good for eating. They were good to be raised up and to eat whatever meat they provided, like lambs and cows. And then there were unclean animals like donkeys. And so what he says is, for every clean animal you have born in your flock, the firstborn of that you are to take and to sacrifice Give burnt offering unto the Lord. And for every unclean animal you have that is born like a donkey, for the firstborn of that breed, of that season, you are to sacrifice a clean animal on their behalf to redeem them. Because an unclean animal could not be offered as a sacrifice. And so he says, take a clean animal, sacrifice it to the Lord as an offering to the Lord, as an acknowledgement of the Lord, and then you have redeemed that unclean animal, and you can use that unclean animal. But if you can't, if you don't have a clean animal, you don't have one to spare, you don't have one that you can give up, or you don't have one at all, then you must kill the firstborn because it is the Lord's and not yours. Now, he doesn't give that same command for the firstborn child, but he does say that you need to redeem the firstborn child by the sacrifice of a clean animal. So that's what he sets forth. 
When a new season starts and your firstborn clean animal is killed out of your the firstborn cow, the firstborn lamb, sacrifice them unto the Lord. When a donkey is, go grab a lamb or a cow and sacrifice it to the Lord. When you have your firstborn child, not of every season, but of your lifetime, you are to sacrifice a clean animal unto the Lord. You think, what does all that have to do with us today? We're not out here sacrificing cows. At least, I hope you're not, right? If you do that, your neighbors are going to worry about you. But there are three principles in this passage that I think are important for us in our lives and in our giving and how we live. And the first thing is this, that when we come to the Lord, we always bring him our firstborn and best, our first and best. I want you to notice in that passage, and maybe you saw that as we read through it, I highlighted the word or made bold and yellow the word firstborn. And I want you to look at wherever you have it pulled up, in your Bible or on your app, and I want you to see how many times the word firstborn is used. Do you think by the number of times it is mentioned that it is to be emphasized that God requires the first? That's not a rhetorical question. Do you think that the number of times it's emphasized that God is saying that there's an importance to the first? Yeah. God is to get our first and our best even before you get anything. Why? What's the principle behind that? Well, here's the principle behind it is that when you give God the first, you are trusting God to provide the rest. It's true faith. You have the firstborn cow of the season. That's the only one you have at that moment. You aren't insured anything else for the rest of the season. But when you sacrifice that firstborn cow to the Lord, then you are acknowledging, Lord, this is yours. And we are dedicating it to you. And we are trusting that you are going to take care of us the rest of the way. If you wait... Until the end of the season when everything has come in and then you sacrifice to the Lord. That shows no faith whatsoever. I know we're talking agricultural terms here and I know you look at me and think farm boy, but that's not who I am, right? But we know the principle that if you give of your grain offering the very first bit of the harvest, You don't know what the rest is going to come in. If you wait till the end, it shows no faith at all to say, Lord, thank you for everything you've given me. Here's a portion of what you gave. The principle of giving your firstborn, the principle of giving your best is throughout Scripture. It's saying, Lord, I don't know what is coming the rest of this term, but I am trusting you with this one. In fact, this principle of the first and the best is the most consistent giving principle in all of Scripture. All the way back to the first example we have of offering gone wrong in Genesis chapter 4 in the story of Cain and Abel. And it says in there about Cain, he brought an offering from the land to the Lord. And then when it says about Abel, it says, and he brought an offering the firstborn of the flock. 
The only differentiation other than the type of offering, whether it was grain or animal, that we have that is emphasized in that passage is the first and the best is what Abel brought and Cain brought just some stuff that he found. And it says in that passage that the Lord rejected Cain and his offering. Something was wrong in his heart. There was some reason that he wasn't bringing his first and best to the Lord. His attention, his desire, his love, his heart was elsewhere. And it was shown in the offering he gave. I read an example this week from a pastor that said, Imagine this scenario. Men, imagine that it is close to Christmas And you decide to buy someone that works with you, female that works with you, a handbag for Christmas, and you buy your wife a handbag for Christmas also. And for the one that works with you, you buy Louis Vuitton top of the line. And for your wife, you buy a clearance item off of the Walmart shelf. How is that going to play in the household? Not well, right? Why? Because where is your attention supposed to go first? To your wife in that scenario. Not to the co-worker. And it may say more than you intend for it to say, right? How many times in our lives have we taken what is first and best and rightfully belongs to the Lord and we have given it to someone else? To something else? That includes our time and our talent. That includes our focus and attention, but it also includes our finances. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled. The first principle that we see in this passage, he says, Firstborn, 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 firstborn of the clean animals, firstborn of the unclean animals. Firstborn of your children. Now again, it's important to understand what he's asking for is the firstborn there is to be dedicated to the Lord. Is to be given over to his service. Given over to whatever the Lord would require of him. I also think it's interesting, by the way, this is a theological thing that goes down, can go down deep if we need to, but we won't this morning. That he requires another animal to be sacrificed for the unclean animals. And he does the same for the firstborn son. Implying that there's something unclean even in our birth because we have been born into the sin nature of our ancestors. The first principle here is that we bring our first and best. The second thing that we do is that we understand who owns it. The word that is used over and over again, now in our translation that we read, is the word present. The word redeem is used and the word present. Both of those words have this kind of connotation that I'm about to say, and this is the reality. The word present in most kind of understandings of that, the best word probably in our English language is to bring, to bring back is another way to say it. And what he basically is saying here is that what you're doing in your giving unto the Lord is just giving back to him a portion of what he has already given you. It is not yours. He tells them to bring it, not to donate it. 
That may just seem like we're playing word games there, but there's a difference between bringing something back that is not already yours and donating something that is yours to a new cause. What he's saying is it's mine to begin with. The Lord owns it all. The Lord gave it all to us, and he is asking us to bring a portion of it back. It is not like we are blessing the Lord with something that we did on our own. Is this spelled out a little bit better in Leviticus 27.30 when Moses is writing the law of the Lord down? A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. It's a tithe. 10% is that word. It already belongs to him. We're just returning it. In fact... Malachi chapter 3 tells us, verses 8 through 10, that when we aren't bringing to the Lord that 10%, that part that is already His, that belongs to Him, that He's asked of us, it's all His. He's just to ask for that portion. When we don't do that, we are stealing from God. He says to them, are you not robbing God? And you say, how are we robbing God? And when you do not bring the tithe into the storehouse, you are robbing God. It's not like God is saying, give me 10% of your hard-earned money. It is God saying, return unto me what is already mine. Uh, I saw this illustration this week about a mom who had had a couple of young children at home, and she said her favorite day of the week was Tuesday. Because on Tuesday afternoon, she would have a babysitter come in and watch the young kids, and she would go to the mall food court. And she would get a Mrs. Fields bag of cookies and a drink. And she would sit in the food court in peace and eat cookies and have her drink. She said one day she got there on this Tuesday afternoon and everything was crowded to the point that all the tables, for whatever reason, were taken. And she sat next to, across from an older gentleman. And she thought, this would be nice, we'll have a conversation. But he didn't talk much when they first sat down. He just kind of nodded and agreed and she sat there for a minute and was just pondering the, the quietness of not being in her house. When she looked up and the man reached over and grabbed a cookie out of her bag and began to eat it. And she thought, what in the world is this guy doing? And so she grabbed a bag out of the bag, a cookie out of the bag and ate it, staring at him the whole time like, what are you doing? She didn't think anything about it until a couple of minutes later. He reached into the bag again and pulled another cookie out and ate it. And she responded in the same way. She picked out a cookie, stared at him more intently and ate it like, leave my cookies alone. A couple of minutes later, he reached into the bag, pulled a cookie out, broke it in two and gave her half. And he thought, the gall of this man. She went shopping a few minutes later and reached in her bag to pay. And when she did, she pulled out her Mrs. Fields cookie bag that didn't have a cookie gone from it. It was his bag that he had been eating out of as she (laughs) thought he was stealing from her. And when God asks us to return 10% unto him and we look at him like he's stealing from our cookie bag, it's the same sort of scenario. I've told this story before, I think, but my my nephew, Caleb, is uh, grown now, has a child, another child on the way, married, worship leader at a great church down in the Birmingham, Alabama um, area. But when Susan and I first met and we were engaged, I went down to meet the family. Caleb was still a young guy and we were at a football game for one of his brothers 
And he, he knew how to read situations even as a kid. And he wanted some candy. And he realized the best person to ask is the guy that's trying to get in good with the family. And so he looked over to me and said, Lyle, can you take me to the concession stand? Sure, yeah, you know, I'm going to absolutely, I want this kid to like me. And so I take him to the concession stand. What do you want? And he wanted M&M's, not the, not the little bag, the share size M&M's. And so I get him those M&M's, pay for it, pull the money out, pay for it, take it back. We're starting a while back. And I said, Caleb, hey, can I just have a couple of those? And he looked at me and said, no. Not at all. I asked him like three times and finally gave it up because I wanted the kid to like me. But in mind, I'm thinking, I bought those M&M's. If I want some M&M's, I deserve some M&M's. And he just simply said, no. The Lord owns it all. And we get upset about what we are required or asked to bring back to him. And we have misunderstood the ownership issue in our lives. Last point. We're going to be very careful on this one, all right? Silence your butts. In writing your notes, make sure you put one T, all right? I don't want you putting that on Instagram was the point that Lyle said today. Because anytime you start a message like this, I hear the yeah buts start to rise. Yeah, but pastor, that's Old Testament. We're talking Old Testament here. Exodus is Old Testament. It is. Here's the truth about the moral law of the Old Testament. Now, we can have a discussion sometime about the ceremonial or the civil law, the kind of the, the governmental laws that are in the Old Testament, because those have been superseded by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the moral laws of the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments, these kind of issues of giving and morality and where our hearts lie, in the, in the New Testament, when Jesus teaches on those, he doesn't discard them, he raises the level on them. He raises the stakes. You have heard it said, do not murder. I say, do not even get angry with someone in your heart. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, don't even look at someone with lust in your heart. He knows different when he comes to the issue of money. He repeatedly asked people to give more than the 10%. In fact, do you remember the rich young ruler that came and he asked him for how much? All of it. When you look at the people that give gifts in the New Testament, they're all over 10%. In fact, I I don't know where they did this, and I didn't see the research, so I can't say I've done the research on this. Someone put that by the basis of who they are and what they give, that everybody that gives a gift in the New Testament gives over 50%. Zacchaeus comes back and says what? If I've cheated anybody, cheated lots of people, I'm going to give them four times what I cheated them. The woman with the alabaster jar that we talked about a few weeks ago, that probably would have been a year's worth of wages. And for her, a year's worth of wages for normal people would have been like four years worth of wages for her. When the church comes together in the New Testament, what does it say they did with their possessions? They put them all together and shared. It gives the idea that they didn't say, hey, here are 10% of my clothes for a food, for a clothing bank, clothes closet if somebody needs it, and 10% of my food for a food bank, and then if anybody needs it, they can have it. They get the idea from Scripture as they piled it together and said, whoever needs, take. So yeah, it's Old Testament 10%. New Testament raises the stakes on that. 
In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, you're tithing on mint and dill and cumin. He says, you're making sure you're tithing on everything down to the spices in your house. Then he says, but you have forgotten the weightier measures of the law, which is justice, (laughs) truth, doing good to your fellow man. Now here's the thing. Jesus doesn't then say, so stop tithing on everything and do justice. He says, you should have done that and the justice. But pastor, I just don't know that we can afford it right now. And I would just say to you, it's the question you really need to be asked is, can you afford not to? This is what Scripture has told us to do. This is what God has laid out for us to do. And I don't want to add a God tax to you. And really, if you are in a place where you say, we just can't, and we're in some financial trouble, some difficulty... I want you to know that the church would love to help you in the midst of that. We have people in this church that would love to walk alongside you and help you through that. And that's going to mean admitting that there's a need there. But we would love to. If that's you, if you say, I really can't, I don't see any way to, but I'd love to figure out how I can. And the card that's in front of you, if you're a guest, if you're a member, if, you're, uh, if you've been here for a hundred years, or this is your first week, that car in front of you, if you want to write your name on it and just say, help, leave a way to get in contact with you. You can leave it in the seat. If you don't feel comfortable with that, you can hand it to me after the service, and we'll be glad to do it. You can email me at pastor at fbcgillisville.com. I'll be glad to have a conversation, pair you with somebody that wants to help. You see, one of the things that we have to realize is these commands in Scripture are for all of us. Not the super wealthy, not the ones that are the super Christians, but all of us are commanded to give. Yes, pastor, but you're only talking about this because churches only want my money. That's all they care about is money. I'll be honest with you, we talk about money in this church a lot less than Jesus did percentage-wise. When I look back over my almost 15 years of ministry here at this church now, one of the things that I look back and think is that, not that I've talked about money too much, that if I've done anything, I have talked about this responsibility of giving and what God has called us to do too little. And here's the truth. Yes, this church runs on the contributions of the people that are a part of it. We are a self-funded organization that runs on people giving in a weekly way. And I have been, just to be honest with you, I have been blown away over the last two years by the faithfulness of God and his people in the midst of a pandemic. Kelly Clawson today, who does kind of works as our financial secretary, showed me the final numbers officially for extravagant giving in December, that offering that 100% of it goes outside of this church, and it was over $42,000. More than we gave last year, one of the largest we've ever had. 
And I told her, I confessed to her, that's one of those areas in my life where I have too little faith because I'm always, well, if it goes down a little bit this year, it'll be all right. And God just again and again, through you and through what's happening, shows up and shows out in the midst of that. And so this is not a place coming to you saying, we are desperate for money and give. This is a responsibility as your pastor, as the person that is in charge of, of helping to under-shepherd, according to God's word, under-shepherd this church and lead us in the place that we're supposed to go spiritually and as a church body to say to you, one of the most important things that you can do in your life is to make sure you are being faithful in this area. And just so you know, here at the church, we take very seriously the responsibility that it is to steward the money that is given to run this church. It is our goal and our responsibility to best spend it for the glory of God and for the sake of his kingdom Multiple layers of accountability, a finance team that works diligently to make sure that they get everything in order and in line and where it is. To give words of of wisdom to the congregation and accountability and to be able to show where it is and what's going on. We had... um, in the last few weeks, we've had lengthy discussions about our budget and what's coming in the year ahead. Healthy discussions with disagreements and discussions about that in deacons meeting and here where the whole church was invited to come. Anybody that wanted to come, we want to be accountable about that. But ultimately, we want to use the money that God provides for his glory and for his kingdom. And I believe that God has intended for that to come through his local church first. Which is another but. Yeah, yeah, Pastor, but but I already give. I just give to organizations that aren't the church. I'm not going to tell you that's not good. I, I, we give to organizations that are not the church. We support, um, we've supported a child in Brazil through an organization. Um, in fact, he, we started supporting him when he was around five or six years old. If I remember, he had a birthday on Eli's birthday. We started that and he has graduated out of the program and we've been, we have another child that we've started. That's one of the many areas outside of the church that we give, but primarily and first of all, our giving and our tithe is brought to the house of the Lord. Malachi, when it says that you have not brought the tithe into the storehouse, God has established through every generation a central place where God's, where the giving that God is requiring is to come. And I firmly believe that today that is the local church. And here's just what I will say, that when we get to the end of this, when I talk to people, and many of the conversations I have are genuine conversations. I think people are really searching, really trying, wanting to be faithful to the Lord. The, the gross or net. Do I give on the gross or the net conversation? I think people are being genuine to the Lord. You have to ask yourself if your buts, your yeah buts, are generally, generally really trying to get at what the Lord wants you to do or trying to figure out what you don't have to do. And if you're trying to figure out what you don't have to do, then there's a heart issue that you need to ask and settle between you and the Lord. We give the first and the best. We understand who the ownership is and we silence the butts in our lives. It's a calling of the Lord upon our lives to give, not just financially, of our time and of our talents and our gifts, all that we are. 
And ultimately, all of it is the Lord's. The question is, what will we return unto him? Maybe you're here today and you think, I haven't been giving. I don't... um, I haven't been giving and, and I don't really know how to start or what's the process here at the church or it's different now. You don't pass offering plates and a couple of things I'll just tell you and we'll talk over the next few weeks about some specialized places you can give but normal giving, tithing, offering. We have lots of people that do that online now. You go to our website, fbcgillisville.com and there's a thing at the top that says give that'll pop, it'd be a pop-up window right there that says how to give. You can text to give and I don't have that number off the top of my head, but it rolls through the announcements um, there. Josh, can you find that on the announcements, the text to give? And you just text an amount of money to this number, and it will set up to 84321. It says any amount. Do not text the words any amount, all right? You text an amount, so 25, 30, 5,000, whatever it is you would want to give. To that number, and it'll lead you through it. You can set up where it's doing regular first fruits, first of the month you give. And then as you walk out today, there are baskets out there that you can give. Now, again, this is not at a time when, um, as, as finance described to us, per capita, that's per person attending giving, we, we are doing really well. So it's not like we're in a desperate place we need you to give. I want you to be faithful with what the Lord has called you to do. And if that means you need to start giving, those are some practical steps that you can start. If you have questions about any of that, come ask me, and I'll be glad to direct you in that way. The real question that I want you to answer today, though, is where is your heart with the Lord? Giving is a sign of the condition of your heart. How you use finances is a sign of how you believe and trust in the Lord. And so the question that I want to ask today is, do you trust in the Lord? And are you good at being rich in good deeds and in generosity? Are you building for yourself treasures in heaven or are you hoarding things on earth? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come today just admitting that many times it's, this is a difficult area of our lives. It's a difficult area where we are reluctant sometimes to do what you called us to do. Sometimes we get offended for somebody to even talk about it or ask about it. Lord, that we live in a society that makes it hard to, to, to make margin in our lives to be able to do what you called us to do. And yet, Lord, we know that it's all from you. It's a blessing from you in the first place. And so we pray, Lord, that in this moment you would... Help us to see into our own hearts. Any reluctance that is there comes from a reluctance to serve you. But we pray that you would refocus our mind's attention on first importance. Our first love, which is you. Lord, if there are those today that have never accepted you as our Savior that are here, we pray, Lord, that in this moment they would come. That you would make them uncomfortable in this moment, realize that it's an issue that they have to settle sooner rather than later. And that they need to be willing to say yes to whatever you call. Lord, I pray that today you would give us wisdom. If there are those here today that need to make life adjustments or they need to come and confess some things that are preventing them from following you completely, Lord, that this altar is open unto them. We pray, Lord, more than anything, that your 
name would be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.